So welcome everybody to Ghosts of Magic. I'm here recording uh, once again solo without Andrea Zillow. It's tough to make this thing happen, East Coast, West Coast. Uh, but I'm Travis Cook Young, and I'm joined today by a repeat guest, Benji Nickham. Welcome. Hi. You know this happens to people. They come on once, just can't stay away. Can't stay away. I like the stardom. Well, that's the thing, right? It's the fan base. It's the uh, it's the listens. It's the plays. It's the all Instagram about Instagram likes. That's right. My yeah, it's all about Chad is flying ever since just, that last one. Right, the Ghost of Magic uh, ego. Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah, it's really it's, hard, it's irresistible. You know, as soon as the likes start to taper off, yeah. I need to get back on. Right, exactly. And uh, so we're very glad to have you here um, to uh, to just add to that to feed the feed the podcast podcast ego. So. Um, Today's podcast, uh, you're back again. It's revolving around uh, the professional practice assignment. It just keeps on going. The term keeps on going. The work keeps on uh, being demanded on us. And so with that, I would, uh, uh, we talk a little bit about this to help answer any questions asked or unasked. Um, yeah, just regarding this assignment. So thank you very much. Yeah. So, uh, this component of the assignment, uh, actually, let's just back to the other one just really quick. I've uh, got to admit, I had a little bit of a hard time starting the last assignment. Not because of the assignment, but just because of the work term and, uh, and just kind of wanting to cling to uh, this, this golden era of, of nothing no that was due. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, well, the work term assignment used to be all due in January. Oh, wow. So it was a real hard late December push. We changed that, though, because, you know, by the time the paper got graded, it would be February, March. Uh, you know, you get your grades maybe April. Right, okay. And for students that need to apply for student loans, they couldn't, they couldn't get it done because the grade wasn't in. So we had to restructure all this. For, right. For part, partly for that reason. The other thing is just so that it all, all isn't done over your Christmas break. Right. So and as, uh, as much as... We all hate doing this. <laughs> right. Yeah, well, I mean, I don't know. We can't speak for everybody. I mean, there's a real love for these assignments out there as well. Um, Let me tell you, I love yeah. reading the responses. I can imagine, okay. yeah. yeah. I get 65 things to read. Yeah. That's a great weekend for me. Oh, well, you're welcome. You know? Thank you. Yeah. I'm trying to I'm speak upon of our whole class. I'm sure we try and provide as much content for you as possible. So, um, this one, a lot more writing, um, a lot more talking about kind of deeper meanings within your work term. And so, uh, it's stage two, part A and part B. That's right. And so, when we're looking here at, at these questions, there's kind of, um, there's some mandatory and there's some optional questions. I think yep. what we'll do is just start in talking about 2A. And uh, and just kind of give an overview, uh, maybe some insight into some of the components here. So um, we won't read out the questions. I think everybody should should have that sort of information available to them. Um, but here we so we've we've got to answer one or two questions. And the first one um, is describing the approach to advocate advocacy, leadership, and ethics within and beyond the walls of the office. So advocacy representation, you know, that sort of thing. Leadership, we understand that. But ethics, this is a, this is a, 
tougher cookie to crack to really understand uh, what ethics means. And so um, one way I like to talk about ethics is with the an ethical experiment <laughs> from uh, Philip of Foot uh, called the trolley problem. I asked if you were going to spring crap. So I was just, I was just interested. Are you, are you, are you familiar with the trolley problem? Let's hear it. Okay, so, um, and I'm glad you're not. So, uh, and for the listeners as well. So, so this is kind of an ethical um, uh, conundrum that comes up for a lot of people. And, <clears throat> and so uh, it's comparing a few scenarios. So the first scenario, you are in a trolley hurtling down a track. Uh, the track comes to a divide. And straight ahead of you on the track, there's four people. And uh, off the track, in this offshoot, there's one person. And so the question there is, you know, do you decide to, um, you know, continue down the track and kill the four people? Mm -hmm. Or do you have a, or do you pull the switch and, and decide to crane off and just to kill the one person? Uh, the extra factor there that the brakes aren't working, you know, you're hurtling out of control, there's, mm -hmm. there's no options like that. So that's one scenario, and uh, where typically, um, you know, people will make a particular choice in saying that, you know, on the whole, uh, you know, it's less, I guess, general damage or, or whatever you want to call it, uh, to go ahead and pull the switch and kill the one person instead of the four. Uh, so then this gets uh, put against uh, more of a healthcare sort of situation where a doctor's put in a position where they've got, uh, you know, four people that are uh, requiring a transplant, and then they've just got a healthy young body person who's come into their, uh, their hospital who would have all of these organs available, readily available, um, but, you know, is, is yeah, not but there to donate. Yeah, you just added a whole bunch of dimensions to it. Before it was five equal people on the tracks. Well, they're all equal people. I mean, no, you know, no. You just yeah. said, you just said that the you have four patients, and then you have one young, healthy one. Yeah, one young, healthy. We'll call them a patient as well. And let's say, oh, I guess so. You're, I guess, to really make it uh, apples to apples, the person, the patient who's coming in, is unaware of any sort of scheme to you know harvest their organs. As well, the one person on the track has been promised. That you know, no danger will ever come to you standing on this track. You'll be, yeah, you know, you're totally yeah. fine. So in in the second scenario, it's very um, common for people to say, "Well, no, you can't kill the four, or you can't kill the one person to save the four mm -hmm. people." There, that's a different situation. It's a different ethical decision, for chance, than killing the four people on right. on the track. Yeah. Any comments on that? <laughs> so that's the trolley problem. So, so I really, I really liked uh, studying this problem and and um, you know offering offering solutions to it. Um, but yeah, so that's that's just one way that I like to jump into a, a discussion on ethics and understanding that uh, it's not a solid line. Uh, that it's more you know it's kind of something that exists. Yeah, I exists think the that. trolley question could be developed a little more. Uh, yeah. To me, there's a little something peculiar about four versus one if they're all equal. And then the healthcare problem is much more complex because it, 
it is about resources and 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 decisions along medical lines, and that's about professional judgment. The the train is a four to one thing. Sure. And in in the healthcare scenario, the outcomes for each individual is unpredictable, are unpredictable in spite of the decision of the doctor. So, uh, I think that those kind of problems need a lot of time to think through them. Mm-hmm. And this is uh, this is really a big part of what it means to be a professional and professional judgment because you have to exercise your own, you know, bias and opinion right. and uh, view of the world and uh, understand what others in your shoes and your professional uh, role may have done at the same time. So uh, I think it's I think it's a a good introduction to to a very difficult problem. I mean, in, in in healthcare architecture, we talk about resources and planning and space and what do patients need, and that we can't be all things to all people at all times. It's mm-hmm. a very fundamental pre- premise of of universal healthcare, and so that means everybody must compromise in healthcare in order to make the system work, which is quite fascinating because at the same time, people say, "Well, why can't I have my knee surgery right now?" Right. But the reality is, you don't need it right now, so you can wait. Right, okay. Right? And that's part of the system, hmm. in spite of the fact that the media likes to make a big deal out of it. Right. It's, it's actually, we, we can't afford more, actually, unless we raise our taxes. So it's, there, are, there are some really um, cool things that evolve when we're talking, talking about care, and, and even end-of-life of care, life care, which sure. is to say, do we put all our resources into preserving a life at the end of life? Mm-hmm. Um, on speculative basis that there were the low odds, you know, of this person surviving, but we'd still throw everything we have right. at that person. Yeah. Um, and s- these are ethical questions that are going to continue to um, arise in more and more frequency. Likewise, the uh, the control over things like the human genome and our, our healthcare interventions. Uh, do we uh, prevent malaria by uh, changing the mosquito? Right. Uh, so these are they're great questions, but they always seem to work out in the end. For example, if, if we change the genomic makeup of a, of a mosquito, which we can do right now to eliminate malaria, we could this week save 250,000 lives. Right. Right? And, but the outcomes are unknown for changing that, that gene, uh, but saving 250,000 lives. But we don't really know where this is going. Right. You're weighing these two different options so, up and not really knowing what they weigh. Exactly, and and the management of information in that comes down to who can kind of yell the loudest or throw the most so-called facts at the problem, right? And who can you know draw on emotions and who can create the you know the idea again the end of life. Hmm. We all want the best for ourselves, so we can put ourselves into that position of a sure. person who's at the end of life and imagine the scenario and say, well, yeah, of course we should do whatever we can. Right. So these things these things are are where the ethics. Uh, boundary comes in as we're talking about this assignment. Mm. I, I love this question, but I think it's very important. I want people to really think about it, and that is because architects as professionals will increasingly see their role in navigating ethics. Right, okay. Okay, so as the world has these increased demands on ethics and ethical decisions, as the population increases, as the resources dwindle, as um, you know, chaos erupts because of global warming. Um, we will be at the forefront as key decision makers around shelter, around dwellings, around mm. space, 
the space that people occupy, the use of resources, we will be called in. Right. And moreover, we should call ourselves in and exercise our right, hmm. our ability, our duty right. as okay. professionals to weigh in on ethical questions. And might I add, that might be through leadership. <laughs> right, advocacy. And advocacy. Right, okay. Right? Yeah. So, quite frankly, if, if you, I, I suggest a 500-word limit here, but if you really want to unpack this, I'm yeah. going to read it. And Great. So if you go to 1,500 words, fine. You know, nice. um, so I'm not, as I mentioned in previous classes, I don't count the words. I'm just give you a suggestion. Mm -hmm. um, so let's just look at um, kind of the Google Dictionary definition of ethics. Yes. Okay. okay. Sounds great. Yeah. The moral principles that govern a person's behavior or the conducting of an activity. So moral principles that govern a person's behavior. So this is like, what am I, what do I believe in? Right. Like Where is my center? Yeah. Right? Okay. And how do I navigate a decision? Mm. Now, a lot of people, um, a lot of students tend to answer this question very on a very um, surface, kind of perfunctory approach to this this question. Like, oh yeah, everyone's really happy in the office. Right. It's a great ethical, yeah, it's yeah. a great ethical balance. Right. Um, that is not what I'm looking for. No, we're going deeper. I'm looking for... Um, I think the best way to, to, to break it down is, that, you know, if the, if the firm or the principals or the people in the firm or an individual in the firm, you know, stand for something, how do they use that to navigate uh, between two difficult decisions? Oh, okay. Not between doing the right thing and sort of doing the right thing. Right, but really something where you're conflict. shitty decisions. Yeah. Nice. Okay. okay. And how do you choose the best one? Right. So an example that did come up in a work term report mm -hmm. um, a client of many, many years who had been bringing this firm repeat work over and over and over again. And this firm was doing a new project with them, and um, this client was insisting that the interpretation of the building code suggested that they did not need to have a fire exit stair wow, where okay. one was being demanded by the architect's plans. Right. Okay. And so you could delete a, a stair and over six stories, that might be a half a million dollars, might be a million dollars, right, a okay. million and a half, depending. Some value. And um, so there's this kind of ethical dilemma that arises with this repeat customer who's always come back to this firm who, mm -hmm. you know, they've had a great relationship for a lot of years, and but who is making these demands. And this was a real problem. And I think, you know, we didn't get down all the way into it sure. in the answer in the assignment. But, um, you know, on the other hand, the firm has to survive. Mm -hmm. This client may be bringing in more than 50% of the work, maybe feeding the mouths of, of these people here. Right. And the interpretation of the building code may be. Right. Well, that's as I say. I mean, we're still, we're interpreting the code. I mean, that's right. something that's, that's all part of following the code is to understand it and find out how it's best suited for your application. Right. In this scenario, though, it sounded like the best quote, best, it was uh, like an economic choice or yeah, yeah something like that. With multiple dimensions that come right. back to like how do we even survive as an office and, and continue to do work. And, you know, in the middle there is the pathway of navigating between those two decisions, which is, um, you know, counseling your client okay, and educating them. Now, I've had that problem. I've had a, a very prominent uh, hospital client. Mm -hmm. Um, who insisted that um, when we were designing their microbiology laboratory that the fume hoods 
be located at the ends of the lab benches. Okay. And that meant that the researcher, if there was a fire in the fume hood, would have to walk past oh, the to, fume hood on escape. fire in order to escape. And we right. said no. Yeah. And it really sucked to say no because um, that client insisted that's what they wanted. Right. And they said, well, we can't go on. So I lost that client, another architecture firm. Wow. I was able to, to pick that client up. And I'm not sure how things ended up. Um, another one that may be in another gray area, um, you know, uh, we might say, well, uh, are all these workspaces that we're about to design, uh, do they need to be uh, entirely wheelchair accessible? Right. And the client may say, oh, no, not really. And, and, and I, I recall a, a case where I would say, I came back and said, well, your policies here say that your work environments are completely accessible. Mm -hmm. Oh, well, that's okay. We don't, we don't have to follow that policy completely. I said, well, this is your policy. Right, this How is can it. I, as a professional, in, you know, follow exercising all my yeah. ethical judgment, yeah. um, deny your own policy? Right. So these are, it's, um, and, and, and do that at the risk of alienating that client. So it's not, by the way, these ethical situations don't all come down to like pleasing your client versus not. No, but I mean, it's a good way to, you know, it's a good example, a good reference yeah. to use, yeah. Yeah, so I'm hoping that um, in any office, one might be able to observe where two difficult decisions were navigated. Mm -hmm. uh, do we do this or do we do that? Uh, neither one of them has a great outcome. How do you know where do we? How do we find our moral center? Right. Okay. That guides us through these uh, decisions, hmm. or there may be an, an example that stands out in history. So um, a student writing this assignment could go and ask and say, "Listen." I want to unpack this a little bit. You've ever had a time where you've encountered two really tough decisions right. and you didn't know how to go and ultimately what happened and uh, see where that goes. Excellent. Good opportunity for further conversation um, with some key people in the office. Precisely. Yeah. And, you know, I find answering these kinds of questions really helps shape what the heck you even signed up to be an architect for in the first right. place. And yeah. finding the, the real truth to, to all it is that we're doing underlying uh, that really comes as uh, this absolute duty right? yes nice wonderful um yeah well wonderful to uh put us in the position then to really think about these things and and to respond so um so 2a question one the mandatory one on ethics yeah. the uh, next section of 2a is to pick well it's not just on ethics so no we, no sorry just yeah to be clear, we yeah. did cover ethics I would also unpack leadership and advocacy in the same way, just yes. like I did with you. We started with the definition. Right. Okay. So look up the definition, connect to it. What's an example that's going on with or with, within or without, you know, the, the office of the wall, uh, right. the walls of the office. Yep. Figure out how to answer that question. Awesome. You can use examples. They don't have to be deep examples. Just give me a kind of reference, you know. For example, you know, da, 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 that's enough. Right. Okay. Excellent. Oh, I look forward to uh, researching that question. Myself. Um, so in the next section here, uh, they're very straightforward. Uh, however, one of these uh, has quite a comment here, and it's this is when you can pick any two of the following questions. Um, and one just says, describe the organizational structure in place for executing the work once the work is won. Um, and they offer a hint here. Organizational structure does not mean the process that projects undergo to their completion. What this question is asking is to describe who are the key players, decision makers, worker bees, people in the know that give the project its working basis? People do the work. So what is the structure for the people for projects? 
Right. So, um, yeah, just could you elaborate that any further? I know that we've already kind of really explained it there, but... Um, yeah, you could think about this as a linear process. So first, uh, you know, the director or the supervisor or the project architects finds out about the project, then uh, they set up the project protocols and then assemble a team of, let's say, junior people in the office as well as others. I'm, I'm looking for the fact that every project needs some structure. Sure, yeah. It. I'm on the team or I'm not. Right, okay. Right? Yeah. What is my role on that team? Mm. How is it different from other projects? Right, okay. So you might say every single office, every single project that goes through this office goes through a very specific structure. Right. Or you might say it's very organic. Right, okay, I'm just depending and, and on project. It varies from project to project. And then you say, for example, the project I am on uh, oh. is Travis. Yeah. You know, I uh, was given a project to project manage right off the bat. Mm. And so my involvement was to you know, deal with the sub-consultants, make sure the director in the office was informed, make sure the client was happy and kept informed, access the resources of the project architect, right, okay. you know, keep the ball moving. That was your role. So it, you could say, now that's not the same as everyone. For example... Cameron in our office had a different role. In a different right, project. okay, so to be able to kind of give a uh, more than just a, a overview, but kind of get a bit more specific yeah. and detailing and understanding that process. Cool. Um, and as well, the last one that <coughs> caught my attention, uh, no one's asked me any questions about this, but I thought this was one, uh, the final one, how has technology changed the practice of architecture for the firm where you work? Um, Lucky enough, had the opportunity to head down to the basement here and see the uh, you know hundreds of drawings that are down there, um, you know reaching back decades and uh, and leaving through some of them. I mean the the just in representation alone, right. you can kind of get lost in this question. Um, so are we looking at um, technology um, just in architecture as a whole? Like are we including? Um, you know, the internet as an example in that there, or are we looking more specifically in like uh, CAD programs and yeah. 3D modeling and things that are more honed in on the kind of day-to-day? -day? Yeah, I think the key here is not to focus on the technology itself. Right, okay. The key is to focus on change in the profession. Okay. And so what you might want to develop personally is a window to the future to mm. this question. So, but first of all, you don't know the technology technological changes that have occurred in the profession if you're writing this assignment. Right, because huh? you're just on your way to becoming part of the profession. Right, so if you haven't gone and asked the oldest person in the right. office, yeah, that's what I was, yeah, that's preferably what I was someone yeah. is still typing with two fingers, yeah. two index fingers, we have someone in the office like that, you can hear it like from the other room. Right, okay, right? yeah. That's who you want to be talking to. Right. Yeah. Yeah, you want to, how, you know, how's it... And for that person, things may not have changed. So, right. So right. you have to go ask another person. Okay. Right? Interesting. Yeah. So you gotta you gotta get in there, and you might you might say, well, pick a piece of technology and drive that through. So the fax machine. Right. How did the fax machine change? You know, uh, used to be all all our correspondence was done by letters. So right. Yeah. You had you know like a good six or seven days for that letter to go across town before a decision was made on that right. thing you just sent. Whereas now we get six seconds. Now, on that comment, though, uh, Francois is here nearly every morning. Uh, courier, and I'm just getting specific here, but I just mentioned that. Courier situation, uh, that's still something that's very active, and it yeah. seems to be kind of on a daily thing. So that's, that's, that's an right. interesting piece of technology right. that is so simple, it's kind of stayed the same. Yeah, it's yeah. fascinating. Yeah. Uh, so whether it's drawing tools, computer rendering, presentation, file sharing, file making, communications, correspondence, 
try to get try to pull out uh, the experience of change. Right. Okay. You know, I used to do this, and now I don't do that anymore. Right. Right. I, so, and and the reason that's really important for you is because going forward, what you're doing right now mm. will not happen. In the right. Future. It's a telegraph of yeah. Right? Exactly. The, yeah. And, and I want you to think about the profession, not necessarily in the way you answer this, but I want you to think about how you invest your time now mm-hmm. in order to shape the future, right? And so I think architecture is going to be a very different thing in the future, and I'm very excited about that. Okay. But I'm interested in this current generation of learners right. being well-equipped for the rapid pace of change. So I'm looking for you to understand that technolo- technological question because everything we do right now will be no longer in 10 years. Right. Everything, just, everything becomes process. too obsolete yep. too quickly. And that's just, so instead of doing like a, a timeline and saying, you know, in, you know, for whenever paper was invented and moving that forward to the ballpoint pen, uh, we're more looking at technology in, in, its, in its role in the profession yep. and, and in the future. Yep. That's great. Um, so the second part of this assignment I uh, have received a couple questions about, yep. and that is the technical document side here. So uh, it just reads, an objective of the professional practice work term is for students to build a portfolio that demonstrates an ability to make technically precise descriptions and documentation. There are many forms of technical documentation. Uh, documentation. So when we're, you know, we've listed those there, um, you know, different graphic representations, um, you know, other uh, sort of reports and things like that can be very technical. Um, but in question, or is section 2A, 2BB, mm-hmm. um, we're providing a covering page describing the technical document in terms of readership or authorship and specify whether you principally, whether you were principally the reader or the author. So from this I get, did you create this drawing or were you in charge of interpreting this drawing and then and creating some sort of analysis from that? Right. Precisely. Yeah, so uh, first of all, um, I want everyone to understand that I'm not looking at the technical document. Oh, as far as it's technical completion. Uh, That's for you. Completion. Right. That's yeah. for you. That's just so you collect three thingies yeah. and put them in your wobby doo Right, okay. I care about the B part. Gotcha. Okay, so uh, the examples are good to include, but please don't send me a, a document set and a PDF that's going to crash everything. Um, just a snippet. Right, will, okay. Will yeah. do. Yeah. Um, and it can be just about anything, really, where there's an input and output exchange of information going on. Okay. Because the technical document is the embodiment of all of the knowledge and uh, critical, intelligent inputs mm-hmm. and outputs going on in the design process. Right. So, or the construction process, or any other kind of process. So the technical document is a is a central figure. It's the it's the it's the hub. Yeah. And we are the spokes, right? Okay. Yeah. So uh, it's really important to be able to consider how a document flows and it, in its own life and what makes its uh, the precision of that document important. Some parts of a sketch are incredibly precise and important, and some are irrelevant because they're unknown. Right, okay. Um, a construction, uh, a, a site instruction for, for construction uh, change or process or clarification tends to be quite specific about a very specific thing. Sure, so, yeah. Um, or, or, you know, you might uh, receive uh, half a built model and some sketches, 
and you got to complete that model. So in that case, you are reading those sketches in the half-built and model. And as I, they're working as a technical document there. Then you're going to be the author oh. as you complete it. So right, okay. What, from any, any point, uh, there's a reader and an author, and there may be many authors, there may be many readers. Mm -hmm. I'm looking for the analysis to uh, you know, look at those questions in the italics there. And, and get into those, just answer those questions um, and in a meaningful way that makes me understand that you understand right. this thing has a life. Nice. Fantastic. That's, yeah, no, that's all. Unlike you and me. Right, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so this one uh, is again due. Uh, it's coming up here shortly, December the 3rd, I believe, is the, is the date. Let me just. Dig through here, and so it's eleven fifty nine. December third, yep. Eleven fifty nine Atlantic Standard Time. So that is the time it is at school, not the time where it is where you're at. Um, I assume again, this is the submission, is you know, bit of a stickler on this sort of a thing. You know, it's got to be. I've, uh, had to be, I've had to be a stickler on that because yes. it's unfair to students who do meet the deadline. So yeah. I've created that precision only to make the line as clear as I can. Understand. I hate I hate that I have to be like that, but it's the only thing that works really to be fair. Of course, yeah. So um, so it's submitted in a PDF uh, format and the actual titling of this, I assume this helps organize your inbox a little bit better, having this sort of consistency. Yes, if you don't name, I'm, uh, if you don't name the file right, there is a big chance I will miss it. Right. That's the okay. Big problem. And that's. Uh, and um, you know, you might notice I I add a G at the beginning of the file before it comes back to you, and that's yes. how I know I've graded. Oh, great! Yes. Fantastic. So, um, so thank you very much for going over uh, the assignment. I. I really feel like the the poster component is something that mm -hmm. that um, you know might be worth touching on here while All we've right. got you. Okay. Um, Let's do it. Since it's due shortly thereafter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I thought it was like a December twenty seventh sort of a thing. But. Yeah. No, we're moving it all forward. Woof. Get it over with. Have a good Christmas. That's there, what I say. Nice. Okay. Great. So uh, we were lucky enough, or not? Well. Yeah, we. I can speak for the class. Lucky enough to uh, kind of know a little bit about this poster, having gone through professional practice at the beginning of B2. Um, really fun few-hour session talking with people who've been on work terms about their work terms and uh, them just using their poster as kind of a reference to be able to tell their story. Uh, but there's more to it than that. Not really. <laughs> Sorry. No, no. I got gotcha. you. Um, well, it, it, it is a little bit more specific, right, though. Right, right. Um, and, and again, we've we've definitely made lots of posters, so so this one is uh, doesn't need as much explanation. Listen, the the key to this assignment is if you slap all the text on from your previous assignments, right? You're it should getting be. like a, a you're getting a two. Right. So the key is to have a really good looking poster nice okay and it isn't to ex explain a lot of stuff it's to express right it's express. part of the presentation of this so uh, someone from 15 feet away should be attracted to the poster come up and get a like a wow idea of what happened or right. a little bit of it and want to ask some questions you might have some text on there that highlights things 
but uh, you know, I'm looking for an architectural graphic output right. that, that looks like it was done by a professional and isn't text-based. This isn't an article in a magazine blown up to post. This is a pinup in wherever we're going to do it, uh, where B5s are going to right. be presenting to B2s. And I want this to look better than every class before you. That's so. uh, that's that's always the goal, and uh, I'm sure a few times we've hit that. You know, it's pretty good. So fantastic. Was there, a, just dealing with that specifically, was there anything else that uh, no. that comes up? No, I can't wait to receive them. Fantastic. Wonderful. Well, again, thank you. And so then moving on, beyond the world of professional practice, see you've, you've brought some things with you here to the, to the boardroom. We are, of course, recording here from um, 5555 Young Street, William Nick and Associates. Wonderful building here in Hydrostone. Indeed. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, so um, some architectural literature. Yeah, so um, as you know, I'm quite a fan yeah, of, of the, of the, the podcast. Yes, yeah, well, thank and, you. Um, yes. Fans beget fans. That's, that's right <laughs> <laughs> nice. Okay, great. <laughs> so uh, I did have a chance to, to listen to some, some uh, great book reviews and was reminded of my kind of piss poor submission of <laughs> suggested readings last Well, I, I did put you on the spot, <laughs> you know, it's uh, involved some uh, airport planning. And, yeah, there you go. Uh, so uh, I did, uh, I was very interested in, in Andrew Gilmore's um, perspectives on the architecture of the other. Yes. And I thought those readings were fantastic. So I thought I would bring one uh, that really inspired me in my thesis. Oh, nice. Okay. Which was um, really about converting um, the Halifax Citadel from a place of war to a place of love. And yes. No, very interesting. I, yeah. <laughs> eroticism. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, it sounds uh, like a very interesting uh, and that was uh, to do that in as few architectural moves as possible. That oh, was basically my, my thesis. Elegance. Um, so in that process, I came along a lot of great books, and uh, you know, starting with anything by Foucault. Okay. But um, I don't ever read a whole Foucault. <laughs> sure. <laughs> Never yeah. have. Right. I turn to the middle and read a couple passages, and that's usually enough to like push me on for cool. the next two or three weeks. So Foucault. Um, so I brought uh, this book, which is called Queer Space mm -hmm. by Aaron Betsky, Architecture and Same-Sex Desire. And I think this is a great reading for anybody um, because it really kind of speaks to the dominant paradigm that exists that has shaped space. Oh, so wow. this makes you think about things like why um, is a door six foot eight? Why are our ceilings eight foot high? Right. Why do we put the doorknob where we put it? You know, all down to how space has always been reappropriated by queer people. Um, and what I mean by that is um, up until maybe the last decade or so, hmm. queer space has been space that existed for another reason, never okay. designed for its own intentions. Right, okay. And so this is why the Citadel was a, is an important um, uh, part of my thesis mm -hmm. because it is a space that was never, in, it was actually intended for for war, but right. actually there's quite a lot of queer prostitution that happens. Sure, so, yes, yes. And so what are the architectural forms that led to that? What are the our urban planning forms? What do we? What is about a, uh, a fortress and the way the things like the gaze is controlled, G-A-Z-E, mm -hmm. or the way we, you know, help people fall into a moat and shoot them? Right, How does that okay. convert to uh, things like uh, objects of desire or uh, attraction? And so... Queer space uh, deals with this this uh, this gamut, so I just I 
I just opened the book. I just found it upstairs. By its very nature, queer space is something that is not built, only implied. Hmm. Just kind of cool. Yeah. And usually invisible. Queer space does not confidently establish a clear, ordered space for itself. It does not partake in the competition for building the largest house, the tallest tower, the straightest street. It does not try to make the richest facade, capture the corner office with its double viewed, doubled views, or stake out an empty space that is your own and not someone else's. It is altogether more ambivalent, open, leaky, self-critical, or ironic, and ephemeral. Queer space often doesn't look like an order you can recognize, and what it, when it does, it seems like an ironic or rhetorical twist on such an order. Interesting. So I think that's you know a really yeah. interesting way to think about space as we move through it and as we design it and kind of that space of the other. And in a way, reading a book like this, um, this Aaron Betsky book, really inspired me to, to be very critical about everything I had learned about architecture cool. and all of the kind of things that we all pin up on the wall mm -hmm. and why we think one project is great, one student project is great, and why we think one isn't. And are we thinking they're great because they conform to each other? Are, right, we, thinking, okay. are we think they're great because they conform to the education we've had? Or do we have they pose a question that we need to answer? And mm. I, at least I want to get to that point. Right. And okay. so... This, um, this book really sets that up. Um, it, it really doesn't um, get too much into like queer politics or you know the politics of homosexuality. It uses um, same-sex desire to inform a way of interpreting space, which I thought was really, really useful. Yeah, that's very cool. So I brought that and, uh, to add to the is it lexicon. Is it part of the Mickham Library? Or is that a... It's part of, the, of my library. Nice. Yes. <laughs> I may, I may ask him for it. That's perfect. Well, um, thank you so much. Thanks for joining us here again. Um, we hope to, uh, to have you on again, even though we don't really need you on to explain any yeah. more of this professional practice stuff. I have to make something up. <laughs> nice. Well, the, the building code assignments coming up. Eh? All right. Yes. Okay. Yeah, we're gonna we're gonna have you all. Yep. Okay. That's Everybody exciting. Everybody, read the building code now. Look up egress. <laughs> Nice. Okay, All that's right. uh, that'll be. Maybe we'll do some sort of a, a con a contest around. Yeah, we'll do that. <laughs> okay. Well, uh, thank you very much. I am Travis Cook Young here with Benji Nickum. Again, thank you very much. My pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening, and we will see you guys next time.